change. So I am honored to be with you this morning, and I am so impressed that Rivers of Justice, What We Should Care About, has been your Lenten theme on this Lenten journey. As some of you know, I am one of the ministers at St. Thomas United Church. I've been there for four years, and the three years prior to that, I was the chaplain of the Calgary Young Offender Center. In addition to that experience, I started volunteering for Mennonite Central Committee's restorative justice team back in 2009, and since then have visited people in prison, but mostly I've supported ex-offenders coming out to help them adjust to the world again, uh, find housing, find a job, find friends, so that they can be successful in society without re-offending. Today I want to share with you my take on God's justice and whether it's in line with what our society interprets justice to be. I've been given permission to share with you two stories of friends of mine that may shed some light on our current justice system. And as I share these stories, I'll invite you to see the commonalities between the justice of Corrections Canada and that of God's requirements of us to do justice, seek and love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. This first story is from a very close friend of mine who recently has had to deal with the justice system in terms of a loved one's offenses. These are her words. My 70-year-old partner with no previous legal incidents made a very bad choice on his computer one hot summer day and was arrested as part of a police sting. 17 months later, after pleading guilty, returning to another province for court three times without hesitation or complaint, he was sentenced to just three months short of the maximum of 18 months. I mention this because he was honest from the day he, of his arrest. He sought counseling and support. I believe Christians are called to live taking responsibility for their actions. It is the way to a better, kinder world. My experience is that there is no room in the court system for honesty. Let me explain. The parole officer tasked with writing a pre-sentencing report asked me to contribute my partner's history and details about our relationship. He clearly indicated nothing in the report would be identifiable. That was not the case. In fact, the Crown Prosecutor used information included in the report identifying my job in the church and my education as proof that my partner was a master manipulator and liar. The Crown Prosecutor has never met me and has had no awareness of my commitment to confession and forgiveness, hope and compassion. That day, I felt I was being judged. As I sat in the courtroom, I felt violated and betrayed by a justice system which functions with and seems to accept its own lies and manipulation. My partner was treated as the criminal who could not possibly be telling the truth. For 17 months, he has been free in his province without supervision or bail, with no suggestion or evidence of reoffending. At his sentencing, the Crown Prosecutor, with her prejudicial and discriminatory attitude about offenders, asserted that he was a huge risk to society and needed a long sentence in order to protect the community. 
There was no evidence to support that assertion, and the court psychiatrist firmly disagreed, reminding the court that it was a no-contact offense. After receiving his sentence, my partner was taken to a nearby detention center, described by the provincial government as overcrowded, dangerous, and corrupt. There is an ongoing investigation about several unexplained deaths inside this detention center in the past few months. I felt like an immigrant who doesn't recognize the language, values, and actions of a new culture. After a few days, I heard from a John Howard social worker that he had been placed in no-nonsense, in a no-nonsense unit with former federal inmates. The provincial system, she said, is not about rehabilitation, but has the attitude, if you do the crime, you do the time. In the last month, there has been press about prejudice and discrimination in the justice system. My experience has shown me the system is broken, arrogant, and predictably biased. I am left wondering what hope there is for redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. In our court, in our country where there is none, where none is available in the justice system, after the dehumanizing, uncaring incarceration, I'm afraid my partner will return less of an honorable man and diminished as a good citizen. This is not an unfamiliar story for others whose loved ones have been incarcerated. There are always more questions than answers, and very few family members are treated with respect or kindness, very often being treated in the same way as the criminals. In a system, it's a system of power over rather than power with, and all are seen as guilty, even before the verdict has even been made. The second story I want to share with you is a story that I wanted to share, I wanted to have shared by the actual person who lived it. This person, we're going to call him Bo, had every intention to be with me here this morning and was willing to make himself vulnerable to you because he wanted his story heard. Now, because he's a high-risk offender, he needed to ask permission from the police to come into this space. He was not granted that permission. So I interviewed him instead. Here are his thoughts. Bo was in jail twice, one and a half years the first time and four years the second time, with a two-year period of not being incarcerated in between. He has currently been out of jail for 10 months. He wants you all to know that he felt physically threatened each and every day he was incarcerated, mostly by the inmates and once by a guard. He says it was normal to feel threatened on a daily basis. Bo says that it depends on where people do their time as to how the guards treat them. In his first jail, in the first jail he was at, he was treated very badly by the guards. In the jail where he spent four years, he describes it as fair treatment. He says that the violence is a way of life in prison. He experienced himself fights, stabbings, sexual assaults, and knows of incidents where people lost their lives. The reason was always about power over and status building. Bo describes the food in jail as horrible, 
And I remember my time at uh, the Young Offender Center and the meals that the kids used to get when I worked there. It was mediocre at best. But what got me most was the amount of bread they would receive. They would receive so much bread throughout the day that it added up to one entire loaf each during the day. And when I asked why, I was told that it was considered the grain portion of the canned food guide recommendations. So every time I offered youth communion, I would always bring in those little mini Oreos. Because <laughs> they were always sick of bread. I asked Bo what he, what he did during the day. How did he manage his day? And he said that if it's available, he could work in various places in the prison, like the kitchen or the laundry. Otherwise, you're sitting in your cell, sleeping, watching TV that you yourself have to purchase, and paying yourself for limited cable. Or if you're lucky, you can be approved to buy your own game system and play games. That always blows my mind. Yeah. There were some programs in prison uh, on the weekends, and only if you were approved. I have no idea what the approval process was. But there was an alternate, alternative violence project. Uh, it was a program that helped the inmates with choosing healthy strategies rather than violence. And there were counseling or psychology programs as well. But only if you were among the lucky who were av awarded these privileges. Now there's also a canteen available in prison, which is kind of like a convenience store where inmates could buy chips, pop, ice cream, noodles, cereal, luncheon meat or hygiene items such as soap or deodorant. But in order to access the canteen, of course, inmates have to have money in their canteen accounts. And that comes from themselves, friends, or family putting money into their account on a regular basis. I asked whether he was paid if he was worked, or if he worked, whether he was paid, and he said yes, $5.80 a day. Less rent, food, and having access to a phone. Not being able to use the phone, but having access to the phone. It came to about $60 for every two weeks, he said, of which 25 was theirs to keep. That's 57% taken away from them in order to cover rent, food, and simply having access to a phone. Now, he also told me that if you weren't working, then you got a welfare check, $20 for two weeks, and of that, you could keep eight, because the same things were taken off. Now, using that phone is an added cost, $2 for local calls and $7 for long-distance calls. In order to actually use the phone, inmates needed to fill, out, to fill a phone card with money that, were the, that they could actually use to make calls. My close friend whose story I shared earlier with her partner didn't have a landline. She only had a cell phone. She told me that because her partner is incarcerated in a different province and the cell phone companies don't allow their users to accept collect calls, she had to get a landline so that her partner could call her collect. She arranged that, which of course had all those initial setup costs, as well as a $15 a month basic charge. After all of that, she finds out that actually, the provincial correctional system doesn't allow inmates to call outside the province at all. And we're really sorry about that. Visitors are permitted, of course, during specific hours and only if the visitors are approved by the institution. My friend Bo had no visitors. 
except for the restorative justice team coordinators who visited him once a month in the year leading up to his release. I asked Bo if he thought a rehab program would have been better than incarceration, and he had no hesitation in answering yes, because, he said, with rehab, you can fix the problem. He believes that jail introduces you to more people who are criminals, and you, in fact, learn to be a better criminal rather than it being a deterrent to reoffending. Bo truly believes that in some situations, jail should, not, should, you, should be used, but only if you're not leaving. If release is an option, rehab would always be better. In addition to it being cheaper to house inmates in rehab facilities, Bo felt that they would be treated more, with more respect. The goal, he says, is to find out what's wrong and develop solutions to solve the problems so that upon release there will be no more victims and no more crimes. And according to the Correctional Services Canada website, in 2015-2016, the cost of an average stay for or the cost of an average uh, or the average cost, sorry, is approximately $116,000 to maintain an offender in a correctional institution, and only 31,000 to maintain an offender in a community rehab facility. It seems like an easy decision to some of us. However, our society makes it clear that jail is indeed the preferred form of justice. So those are the two stories I wanted to share with you this morning. And as you can imagine, my passion for justice came at an early age. Otherwise, I wouldn't be drawn to the social justice part of my ministry. I was always the outspoken one who made it clear, very clear, how unfair I thought decisions were in my world and how unfair situations were. <laughs> I remember my dad, so my mom and dad are very uh, traditional, and they have their roles, and they're very, my mom does certain things and my dad does certain things. And so we're sitting down to have supper or lunch or something, and my mom had been running around all day because she makes a big lunch at lunchtime, like a big, what we do, supper, she does at lunch. And so she had been cooking for hours, and she finally sat down at the table. And my dad timed it perfectly and said, oh, I'd really like a beer. And my mom was about to get up and get him a beer. And I said, is there a piano tied to your butt? Like, why can't you get up and get the beer? <laughs> and from then on, he almost set me up <laughs> whenever I visited, because he knew that I would say something. He kind of got a kick out of that. <laughs> it was... My, so, my sense of social justice was always enhanced. It was just enhanced and strengthened as I got older, and especially since my study and focus on diaconal ministry. One of the coordinators of the restorative justice team told me as we were coming back from visiting the Drumheller Institution that most people don't come to working with those on the margins as easily and with so much care as I did. He said that it's truly a calling and a gift from God, and that I should be using it to share the love of God to everyone, even those whom society deems unworthy of love and care because of what they've done. The scriptures this morning talk about God's justice, and in many ways it's very different from what we consider justice to be in our secular world. And that's unfortunate. Our scripture from Amos is, of course, the common thread through your Lenten focus this year. 
And the inclusive Bible version says, let justice flow like a river and righteousness flow like an unending, unfailing stream. I always find the analogy of water so comforting, similar to the visual of baptism and coming up out of the water, and that same feeling of finally hopping in the shower after being out camping for days and days with no water. We all know what that feels like. (laughs) Having justice flow like a river and righteousness flow like an unfailing stream gives me this visual that justice is always a responsibility. And as is the righteousness that should be coming out of such justice. Our stories today, however, might not depict or make us very proud of how we're doling out justice in our world. The scripture from Micah is one of my favorites. These words are far, by far the most clear on what justice, what God's justice is like, what we're expected to do and how we're to behave to ensure God's justice is flowing like an unfailing stream. The first part of the Micah scripture includes a narration by people who were acknowledging the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. The unidentified speaker represents those who seek instruction on the appropriate sacrifices to God. The questions are a part of a procedure that people of that time would have taken, asking for priestly clarification. And the famous summary of God's requirements then follows. God seeks the doing of justice, the loving of kindness, and the walking humbly with God. And Nick told me today that that was the scripture that you used at the beginning of this. It's a God thing. These things just kind of happen, yeah. (laughs) So the first of God's requirements is the doing of justice. I recently explored the word justice with a congregant of mine because she was wondering if justice meant anything different in ancient times, and it turns out that justice is justice. Now, it's not justice in terms of things like our justice system, It's God's justice. And that involves the faithful honoring of God-established relationships. And what are God-established relationships? Pretty much any and all relationships. So doing justice is the faithful honoring of or respect for all relationships. And to me, our current societal justice system doesn't seem to fulfill this requirement. Not in my experience, and certainly not from what I've heard from both offenders and families of offenders. Second, God expects the love of kindness. The King James Version uses mercy instead of kindness, and it basically means the same. However, mercy to me is more of a God word, and I'm humbled to think that God expects me to be merciful like God. This requirement of loving kindness or mercy is really a devotion to loyalty or a practice of steadfast love. Our system today is far from being as merciful or kind as God is. For example, we continue to publish the names of the accused before they've even been tried or found guilty of any crime. Lives are ruined as soon as a name is published. And not only the lives of the accused, but also the lives of their families, friends, co-workers, neighbors. The rest of us are easily guilty by association before a person is even found guilty. How is that loving mercy or kindness? The third requirement is proper attention to God, to walk humbly 
rather than presumptuously. In other words, God requires us to keep God at the center of who we are. We are to be humble in our dealings with any and all, and we are to walk with God when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation. I find it so interesting that we are a people for whom God is the ultimate symbol of unconditional love. And we are reminded over and over again that we are to keep God at the center of all we do and are, which means keeping love at our center. How, when we keep love at our core, can we be so quick to judge people or not be open to second chances or not want people who have made mistakes to be productive, loving people in society? Walking humbly with God is about loving kindness and mercy and ultimately coming back to the first of God's requirements of doing justice, God's justice, that of being God's love in the world, being the hands and feet of that love both in action and reaction. So as you wrap up this Lenten series on justice, may you see that the path to justice is simple. It's all about love. We are all to be models of God's justice flowing like a river, a river full of so much love and kindness and mercy that only respect can emerge. Let us walk humbly with our God, keeping God or love at the center and core of all our thoughts and actions. Doing so will result in a more just world filled with like-minded, loving, and merciful people because I believe the good and positive can spread just as quickly as the bad or negative. We just have to be the ones to spread it. May it be so. Amen.